St. James Lutheran Church. I'm glad that you're here with us this morning, worshiping uh, together with us. Uh, Can I give you a couple of quick announcements, uh, a new announcement, and then a regular announcement, and then we'll begin worship. First of all, uh, we we are at St. James. If you are in the Glen Carbon area, we are looking for a new office manager. And so if you're interested in serving in in that way, uh, please get a hold of me. You can email me individually, or you could contact the church and let us know about your interest, and we can describe to you uh, what being the office manager would entail. Uh, but if you're, inter- if, if you're in the St. Louis area and you know of anybody who'd be interested in this, uh, please let us know as well. And then uh, the regular announcement, a Bible study on Zoom at 10.30 today. If you want to join us, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is God and what that means for us as worshipers of the triune God. And if you're interested in being a part of that discussion, please let me know. If you are already in the group, you should have received an email this morning. If you didn't receive an email inviting you to that Zoom Bible study, but you want to be there, please let me know, and um, I can get that out to you between a worship service and the Bible study, which will start around 10.30, so let me know. Okay, let's begin. And we'll begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sins to God. And this morning, the confession of sin is based upon Isaiah 6. So if you're familiar with Isaiah's vision of of Yahweh in his temple, sitting high and lifted up, you'll recognize a lot of this language in here. So pray with me. Holy, holy, holy you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness frightens us. What else can we do but fall down before you and confess our woe? We are lost. We are a people of unclean lips and unclean thoughts. 
the light of your holiness only reveals the darkness of our sin. Holy, 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 you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is white hot, converting our sin. Send your seraphim to us with burning coals from your altar, that our guilt be taken away and our sin forgiven. Holy, 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 you are, O Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. Your holiness is frightening, all-consuming. Sanctify us to your service. Make us holy that we might be your people, that we might reflect your glory and serve you forever. In the name of Jesus we pray, whoever stands before the altar of heaven, our mediator, who presents before your holy majesty our prayer and supplication, now and evermore, Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all your sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from Romans chapter 5, which is uh, our uh, scripture text from last week, our sermon text from last week. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The psalm reading is the first part of Psalm 116. I love the Lord, the psalmist says, because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed. Even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Reading from Acts again this morning. Acts chapter 2. Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Epistle reading, of course, is from Romans 5, following up on our reading from last week. We're going to read Romans 5, 6 through 11 this week. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more, shall we, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Gospel reading is from Luke 24, and it's that fantastic text where Jesus meets 
two of his followers on the road to Emmaus, days after his death. In fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. These disciples don't know it yet, but they're about to meet him. That very day, two of them, two of Jesus' followers, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other while you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We'd hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it's toward evening and the day is now spent. And so he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened to them on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread.
Okay, let's continue our study of Romans chapter 5, uh, 6 through 11. Just a reminder, uh, we're in between Romans 1 through 4, uh, where Paul describes the sin problem. That is because of humans, our rebellion against God. Uh, we've destroyed ourselves and our relationships, and we're actively destroying the world that God created. God fixes the problem, though. He describes this in Romans 3 and 4. God fixes the problem, and he does so through the death of his son, and by, through the death of his son, he maintains his own righteousness and makes us righteous too. He simultaneously does both those things. And now, Romans 5 through 8, which we're going to spend the next few months working through, is Paul's description of what that justification looks like in the Christian life throughout the history of the world, what it looks like in real time, beginning with, and next week we'll start talking about Adam, beginning with the fall and going all the way to, at the end of Romans 8, new creation where God ultimately restores all things. Now, last week's reading, Romans 5, 1 through 5, and this week's reading, Romans 5, 6 through 11, function as a transition point between these two sections and as an introduction to what we're going to begin doing in earnest next week as we look at Adam and the problem of sin and God's solution to it as as he describes it in Romans 5, verses 12 and following. But, so last week we talked about um, reconciliation, And this week, we're going to start off with verse 6. I'm just going to read verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That verse is the most important verse in our section here. The rest of our verses, uh, verses 7 through 12, are just going to explain what verse 6 says. But you'll notice that verse 6 starts off with the word for. And what that for means is, is that verse 6 connects to something and explains something that came before it. For whatever came before, because of whatever came before, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Going back and looking at verse 5, we can see that what Paul's going to explain in the next few verses, and this is going to be the theme of the sermon this morning, is that God justifies sinners because he loves sinners. In verse 5 he says this, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And I told you last time that Paul, way less than uh, John, for instance, St. John, is, Paul is less interested in the love of God. That's a bad way to say that. It's not that Paul isn't interested. He just brings up the love of God as a motivating factor, less than John does. It's probably best to say John is really, really interested in it. Paul here in Romans 5, though, he's going to explain that the reason why, not the only time he talks about justification, of course, in the book of Romans, is a great description in chapter 3, But in chapter 3, it was a description of what justification is. God redeeming us, buying us back, declaring us not guilty for the sake of his son Jesus. Here in chapter 5 in these verses, he's going to tell us why he does this. And the why is because he loves us. Because God loves us while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And the text this morning in the sermon is going to be about the nature of this true love. What does this love of God look like? What does it mean? How can we know that God loves us? What does it look like when he loves us? Right off in verse 6, you can see that God's love is love for the weak. This probably means less physically weak or psychologically weak or mentally weak, although certainly we all are those things. And probably means, in parallel with the word ungodly at the end of verse 6, it means morally weak. We aren't able to save ourselves. We aren't able to be righteous. We aren't able to be faithful to the covenant. We constantly disobey God's law and thought, word, and deed. We are weak. We're ungodly. It's the last word that he uses there. This is true love, that God gives up his life. God gives up the life of his son for those of us who don't deserve it. We have this false notion. Let me, let me speak for just a few minutes to those of you who are Christians. Uh, those of us who are Christians kind of have a false notion sometimes that the story the Bible tells is one where God the Father hates us, and we hate him, and then God the Son convinces him to love us. God the Son goes to him and says, I died for them, and now you have to turn your hearts towards them. And um, I don't want to poo-poo that completely, but actually the more biblical description is of a God who loves us first. Jesus doesn't convince the Father to love us. God sends Jesus because he loves us. Because of the Father's love for us. When we were, before we were worthy, before Jesus died for us, before we were made holy, God the Father loved us. Else, what reason would he have for sending his Son? It's, it's got to be love, right? Well, then we have a problem because 
the Bible describes us as enemies of God. In fact, in verse 10 it says, um, uh, if while we were enemies we were reconciled, how is it that God can love, how is it that God loves us and we're simultaneously enemies? Well, it only takes one person to be an enemy. right? Anybody who's had a, a, a child rebel and leave angry knows what it's like to love that person, and yet you're still enemies, not because of your desire, but because of the choices that they've made, because of feelings and thoughts and words that they've had. And this is the position that God finds himself in. He loves us tremendously. He always has from the beginning of time. We're the ones who've turned our backs on him. We're the ones uh, who've run from him. And so if there's any sort of enmity, it's not from God to us. Yes, God hates sin, but God's hatred of sin is more like your hatred of your spouse's cancer, if they have cancer. Has no, cancer's inside of them. You don't hate them, of course, but the cancer might make you love them even more. But you hate what they're carrying around with them. God's enmity towards sin shouldn't be mistaken as a lack of love for us. God's loved us for all time, and his love for us motivates us to sending his son for us. In fact, this is what true love is. This is the fundamental description. Love is self-sacrifice for the undeserving. 1 John 3.16 says this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Kind of echoing language that Paul's using here in Romans chapter 5. God pours out his love on us into our hearts through the Holy Spirit because while we were enemies, while we were ungodly, while we were morally weak, Christ died for us. Now, verse 7 is going to explain verse 6. And I say explain, I use that word loosely because verse 7 is famously difficult to interpret. And if you look at the commentators, you'll see that there's just a, a bunch of different interpretations. Let me read it to you and you'll understand what I mean. For one, so, so God sent Jesus to die for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even, even dare to die. What does this mean? I can't say for 100% certain that I know exactly what this means, but I think that this is a pretty good guess. Paul uses the word righteous here to mean what the word righteous means. Right, upstanding, faithful, a person within whom there is no fault. Let me ask you a question. Who would you die for? Now, most of us would answer, first of all, the people in our immediate family, right? The people who are closest to us, we would take a bullet for. But beyond that, beyond, beyond your family, beyond your uh, uh, nearest relations, who would you die for? Would you die for somebody who's righteous, somebody who's upstanding. Think about the person, think about a person that's just a genuinely honest, selfless person. Would you die for the person who works behind the counter at the food pantry? You may say, well, I don't really even know that person. I admire them. What they're doing is certainly self-sacrificial and noble and in a sense, you know, deeply morally good. I don't know if I would die for them. Okay, well, think, think about somebody that maybe you know a little bit better, even though you might not know them personally. Think about a politician, either living now or sometime in human history, who you know is deeply honest and totally committed to their country or to their state or to their city, to their village. Think about that person. And they've given their life to, to, to sacrifice for the public good. Would you die for that person? I probably wouldn't. I don't really even know them either. I mean, they're great people. I mean, there's been great leaders throughout human history. What about, let's ramp it up a little bit more. What about, some, what about some, somebody who's religiously righteous? The most holy person you could think of. Would you die for Mother Teresa? I don't think any of us, maybe, maybe I'm misjudging you guys, but I don't think any of us would take a bullet for Mother Teresa as good and beautiful and as holy as she is. Nobody's going to die just because somebody's righteous. This is Paul's point. Somebody might die because somebody's good. That's what the next line is. The word good there has the sense of like beneficial to us. In fact, embedded in that word might be the notion of benefactor. We're kind of unfamiliar with this notion of benefactor. In our culture, capitalism is the economic system. In the Greco-Roman world, they didn't function on capitalism. They functioned on a patronage system, which everybody had a benefactor. It's not necessarily a wealthy, rich person, but somebody who would do favors for you, somebody who would 
provide you with money and so that you could feed your family and have a place to live. You, in turn, would use some of that money to be a benefactor to people below you. It's possible that Paul's kind of hinting around at that word, but definitely I think what he means is the good person is the person who does good to us. Think about the person who benefits you. Not in your immediate family, but the person who benefits you. It's possible that there's somebody who's been so good to you that you would take a bullet from them. But even then, you've got to think about it. But whatever Paul means by verse 7, and I'm not convinced that what I just explained to you is absolutely correct. Whatever he means, he's setting up a contrast between the righteous and the good person and our either complete unwillingness or tentativeness to die for that person and Jesus' complete willingness to die for people who aren't righteous, aren't upstanding. In fact, people who aren't good even. People who aren't doing good for themselves or for other people or for the environment and certainly not for God. This is God's love is that he dies for the other. God dies for his enemies. So he sums up in verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood. I'm sorry, verse 8, but God, summing up in verse 8, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, we weren't righteous, we weren't godly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is true love. Okay, now let's take verses 9 through 11 and spend the rest of our time because Paul's going to sort of say this is what this looks like now. God's love for us, he justifies us because of his love. He reckons up. But what does this actually look like? Let me read verses 9 through 11, and then we'll talk about it for just a few minutes. Paul says this, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's a ton of stuff in here, but just really quick. Three applications from this text. And this is not even really stuff that you and I should be doing, and it's more stuff that we, by faith, should be recognizing that God has done for us. These three applications. Three things, three truths that we can find out about true love in verses 9 through 11. First of all, true love is creative. True love is creative. Now, I I don't necessarily mean by that that true love inspires you to make things, to, you know, write songs or poetry or to carve beautiful things out of wood, although it might. It's not what I necessarily mean, though. What I mean is this, is that true love makes the thing loved or the person loved makes that lovely. True love makes the thing lovely. True love is proactive, not reactive. True love doesn't react to beauty. True love creates beauty. So what Jesus is doing here, right, is he's not saying, I love those guys because you're beautiful and I just can't resist. He says, you aren't beautiful. You're enemies. You're ungodly. You're not good. But I'm going to love you and rescue you and make you good. Make you lovely, make you beautiful. This is what true love does. The problem, of course, is like we use the word love not in this sense quite frequently, and I'm not saying wrongly. If, you, if you're a member of St. James, we've had this discussion before. We say things like, I love banana pudding, or I love fancy hotels, or I love pickup trucks. We say things like that, and what we mean is there's something about banana pudding or fancy hotels or pickup trucks that attracts us that we like better than chocolate pudding or rundown hotels or sedans. There's something that attracts us, that, that, that earns our love, that, that, that gives our affection, that, that, that takes our affection almost against our will sometimes, right? We can't help it. We just love these things. And in other words, what I'm saying is, is that love has a reason. Love, typically when we talk, has reasons for it. Think about, like, let me ask you this. Why do you love your spouse? Why do you love your best friends? Typically, we'll, we'll answer with reasons. I fell in love with my spouse because she's beautiful or because he's just really funny. Our friends, are, we, have, we share a lot in common. There's reasons for it, right? There's some sort of like, I'll g- give it to you. But what about when the reasons are gone? What about when the beauty's gone? What about when the person's not funny anymore? What about you and your friends your interests diverge. You move or you, uh, you start to take up new hobbies. What do you do then? Then the sort of love dissipates, right? This is why marriages founder. 
This is why friendships founder. is because our love is dependent upon reasons. There's reasons for why our, lo- our, our love is there. Instead, we should think of more, our love more like the love of, that we have for our children. That seems to be closer to the heart of God. Love for somebody for whom there's no reason except that they belong to us. Right? You, don't, you, don't, you love your children, no questions asked. You don't put, to, to quote G.K. Chesterton, uh, you don't put a bow in your baby's hair because your baby is ugly and needs the bow to be beautiful. You put the bow in your baby's hair because you're convinced that the baby's beautiful and you want to highlight it. To quote G.K. Chesterton again, and honestly, it won't be the last time I quote Chesterton this morning in his book, Orthodoxy. Rome was not great. I'm going to change that. Men did not love Rome because she was great. Rome was great because men loved her. There was no reason to love Rome, but people did it and then turned Rome into a great city, worthy of love. If there was reasons to love somebody, when the reasons go away, the love goes away. But God's love for us in Jesus Christ is creative. It's not dependent upon our loveliness. It creates our loveliness. It adorns us with his beauty because it convinces us that we're lovely, that we're beautiful, that we're worthy to be loved. It's the death of his son that does that. So true love is creative. Second of all, True love is transformative. True love, this kind of goes along with the first one, right? True love changes us. There's no, reason for, there's no reason why God should love us except for he just decides to love us. But once he does love us, he transforms us. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. God's already done the hard thing. He's already justified us with the blood of his son. If he's already gone to the great lengths to justify us and save us through the blood of his son, won't he do the easier thing and rescue us from the final wrath of God on the last day? Again, Paul's hinting around at themes that are going to come back up in Romans chapter 8 at the end of the story. God's last judgment. Jesus promises to rescue us from that last judgment. And what's more than that in verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God is committed to rescuing us even now. He's gone to the great lengths to love us through the death of his son. He's going to love us even now. What does save us now mean? It means he's going to change us. This is honestly a place where a lot of us get off with Christianity. We're like, I can't do this anymore. I talk to a lot of Christians, and I've mentioned this to you before. I talk to a lot of Christians who are like, I believe the Bible. You know, I go to church. I just can't believe what, I just can't go along with what the Bible says about X, Y, or Z, fill in the blank. So what we're saying is this, is like, I, I, I'm a fan of God. I'm a fan of Christianity. As long as it lets me retain who I am in my own opinions. If I can actually be in charge and say, I like items one, two, three, four of Christianity, Item five, I don't want that. True love, though, is determined to transform us to look like the way the lover wants us to look. That's the way true love is. Guaranteed. There's this um, um, quote from, uh, I'm going to read it to you now. There's this quote from, another quote from G.K. Chesterton in the book Orthodoxy, which, by the way, you should get the book Orthodoxy and read it if you haven't. It's fantastic. But he describes this thing. He describes how in, in true love, there's always this desire to shape and mold that we're going to rebel against because we don't really, we, we want to be our own sovereign individual, but this desire is always there. And he's describing the love, he's writing at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. So he's describing the love of women and how it's purported to be that, that women are unthinking and they just blindly love and accept whatever it is that their spouses or their children or their parents do because they're just unthinking. And here's the comment he makes. Some stupid people started the idea that because women obviously back up their own people through everything, therefore women are blind and don't see anything. They can hardly have known any women. The same women who are ready to to defend their men through thick and thin are, in their personal intercourse with the man, almost morbidly lucid about the thinness of his excuses or the thickness of his head. A man's friend likes him but leaves him as he is. A man's wife loves him and is always trying to turn him into somebody else. This is spot on. 
Love defends from the outside attacks, but it's constantly trying to shape and transform. God's perfect love is trying to shape and transform you. Don't be confused. Don't, 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 don't fall for the cultural lie. That, I mean, you, you remember the line from Love Story. Love means never having to say you're sorry. And of course, we all poo-poo that. Even in the culture, you can find memes making fun of that. But it's actually the attitude that we have. Love means that you'll let me alone. True love means that you'll let me be who I am. And actually, in the Bible, true love transforms. True love is desperately shaping us, trying as hard as it can to make us the people that we ought to be. Christ's true love is transformed. It died for you. He died for you. He rose from you. And because he rose from you, he's trying to transform you even now. Third thing, true love is deeply satisfying. True love is what your heart is seeking and what your heart is looking for. Look at verse 11. More than that, Paul says, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, up till now, verses 6 through 10, he's been describing what God is doing. God is rescuing us even though we were enemies. He's shaping and transforming us now. He's committing to rescuing us on the last day. But now in verse 12, verse 11, he gets to what's going on with us. More than that, we also rejoice in God. There's an emotional response to God's love for us. Actually, the word rejoice here in Greek is actually the word that's most frequently translated boast. It's the same word that Paul uses in in 2 Corinthians 12 when he says, I've had these wonderful experiences. I'm 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 a powerful Christian who's experienced powerful things, and I could boast about what a great Christian I am, but I'm being taught by God to boast only in my weaknesses and boast only in the cross of Christ. See what the word boast means there? It's the thing that you're proud of. It's the thing that you've earned. It's the thing that defines you, the thing that you can say, I'm a winner. That's what boasting is. I'm a winner because of this. And Paul says here in Romans 5.11, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So a lot of people will say, I don't really, I'm not really interested in being loved. I, I want to be respected. You know, I'm not interested in people liking me. I just want people to respect me. You've heard that before. I hear that quite a bit. Um, Actually, I think that what they mean is, so here's what respect is, right? I mean, respect, you guys know this, you don't ask for respect. You don't say to somebody, hey, will you please respect me? You have to earn respect, right? You have to do something worthy of respect. You have to live kind of an honest life or a hardworking life or a a life of self-sacrifice to earn respect. I think that what we actually mean is love when we say that. I want people to think affectionately of me. I want people to be committed to me. I want people to love me and like me. But I want to know that I've earned that. That's an, so I think that's what we mean. And you see what we're doing? We want to love. We're trying to hold two contradictory things together. We want to love. I mean, we want to be loved. And we want to know that that love is unconditional. That people will always love us. But we also want to know that we're worthy of it, that we've deserved that love, that we've earned it, that there's something about us that we can depend upon getting that love and respect from people. And what Paul is saying here is that the nature of God's true love for us is that we aren't going to, we have no standing like that. We have no cause for boasting. We are unworthy. We can't demand respect. We can't demand love. Instead, it's freely given to us. It's free. See, see what, if you, if you want the kind of love that you can earn, you're going to lose it. You are at some point going to be unrespectable. You're going to say something you shouldn't say. You're going to make a decision, even if, you're not a, even if it's like unco- an unconscious decision. You're going to make some sort of decision to lose that love and respect. You are not going to be satisfied. And what God is offering you with Jesus Christ is perfectly satisfying, ultimately fulfilling, guaranteed, lasting forever, no questions asked, love. No questions asked. That's something that you can boast in. The love that God has given us in Jesus Christ, we can boast in because we haven't earned it, but we've been given it. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to this love, this love that you've given us, this love that you've given us for no reason. And because there's no reason for it, we can depend upon you. 
because there's no reason for it. There's nothing that we need to keep doing to earn that. There's no reason that we need to offer to get that from you. Love that transforms us. God, make our minds and our hearts soft to your transforming love. Help us to seek your will, not our will. Help us to be your people, not our own people. Help us to boast in this. Help us to find our deepest satisfaction, our identity, our glory, our ultimate and final joy in your love for us and your Son, Jesus Christ. Pray this morning, uh, Father, that you would be with all these people who are watching, who I can't talk to in person right now, I can't see, uh, who struggle with needs. And I know all of us are kind of off on our own, and we're wondering how is everybody else doing. And we don't really know. Frequently we don't know how each other's doing, Father. And so we're going to ask you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to pray the prayers for each other that we don't know. To, to lift up each other in our prayers in ways that we can't even comprehend because we don't know what each other's going through. Holy Spirit, do this. I will pray, uh, as we have been praying, Father, for our healthcare workers and for our political leaders and for our first responders, especially for people who are sick. I'd like to also pray this morning uh, for school teachers, talking with our school teachers. Uh, Father, this is difficult work, and it's... Uh, it's, it's made even uh, more difficult by the distance between student and teacher, where you don't know if the, uh, the, the teachers aren't, don't know if the students are getting it, and the students aren't able to ask the questions they need to ask. Father, help that whole process to go well. Work out your will in the lives of our teachers and our students. Father, work out your will in the life of our church, St. James Lutheran Church, and the church at large, your body throughout the whole world. Like Help us to grow, Father. Help us to come to love you more and more through this. Help us to come to love each other more and more through this. This is something we need your Holy Spirit to work up in our hearts. And when you do, we'll give you the praise and glory for it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that He taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. Amen.
你。